Welcome to the Rope Walker Podcast, the monthly podcast from the Corsicana Artist and Writer Residency, featuring intimate conversations with our residents. My name is Alicia Nicole Harris. I'm a poet and the residency's director of public programs. I'm also this week's host. Today we're in conversation with writer in residence for April 2021, Austin-based poet and archive enthusiast, Julie Poole. Julie's work on the page balances attentive construction with more organic gestures. An intensely authentic space emerges from her lyric. Her first book of poems, entitled Bright Specimen, began to take form after Julie stumbled serendipitously across the Billy L. Turner Plant Resource Center at the University of Texas at Austin. In this episode of Rope Walker, Julie talks with us about Bright Specimen, set to be released with Deep Vellum on May 4th and her love of archival material. She also shares with us what she's been working on while in Corsicana. Her next book of poems, titled Landscapes Without Us, aims to imagine nature as the focal point of life on Earth. I just want to first say congratulations on Bright Specimen. Oh. Yeah, it comes out in just a few days with deep vellum. Um, And so, like, what was that experience like working with them? They're a local um, independent press. So yeah, can you talk to me about that? Oh man, it it was a dream come true for me. Um, Actually, um, uh, a friend sent them my manuscript. I really couldn't afford to submit the manuscript out. I was looking for places that you could submit to for free. And a lot of, you know, poets go through this (laughs) every year. They want to submit their manuscripts and the fees are like, $35, $45, and uh, it really starts to add up, so it was just sitting on my computer, and uh, um, yeah, she recommended um, my work to him. Uh, Her name is Taisia Kataiskaya, and her book is also on deep vellum. Mm -hmm. Um, It's called, uh, her book is called The Nightgown, and she said that he was looking to publish more um, Texas poets. Mm. And so I was like, okay, well, I'm in Texas. I've just spent like four years writing about um, uh, plants harbored in Texas and at the UT um, Plant Resources Center on campus there. Um, But yeah, you know, they were so incredible because I was very specific about what I wanted. I wanted um, the book to be sustainable. It was really very important to me for it to be on recycled paper and Mm -hmm. just as sustainable as you can get it. And they agreed to that. And I'm so grateful for that because um, a lot of books aren't printed on recycled paper and it should be standard by now, but it's not. So the publishing industry as a whole has a long way to go. Um, especially considering how many books aren't sold every year and end up in storage and end up like being incinerated. (laughs) They don't go anywhere. So it was so important to me that this book not take from the earth. Like, I I sound like a tree hugger, but I am a tree hugger. (laughs) I'm totally a Northwest born and bred tree hugger. So I wanted that, and then I wanted to have images of the specimens in the book. And um, a friend of mine uh, helped to design the cover for me. So um, I got to have a lot of creative choice. 
and as a first-time author, um, it's just so amazing to have someone trust your aesthetic. I, I'd work, I worked as a bookseller. Mm-hmm. I know what books like get displayed, um, mm-hmm. and you know, like the image on the cover has to be eye-catching. So yeah. that's what I wanted. And that's what they gave you. That's what they gave me. That's amazing. Because I know so many poets and so many writers that don't get to have really a say in the cover art or the way the book is laid out. And it's sort of like their words, but then someone else's um, design choices. So it's really awesome that they uh, they like gave you that kind of autonomy over your own book. Yeah, I am so grateful to Will Evans and... And the whole team at Deep Film for everything they've done, um, because they really did uh, <laughs> cater to my every wish. And I'm not normally like mm-hmm. I don't normally make like requests or demands, but I felt like that like uh, there were certain things that I just weren't movable for me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So. Um, you talked a little bit, you mentioned a little bit about um, how uh, Bright Specimen came to be, but you were in an MFA program at UT. Yeah. Um, was Bright Specimen your manuscript, or did something, or what happened? Okay, so this is a funny story. So I had to turn in my manuscript uh at the main tower, which is a building that's like the center of UT campus. Like whenever there's a game, it's lit up in orange. I mean, like it's the tower is just like, that is the campus. Everyone mm-hmm. is like, hook them horns, photos right in front of that, that uh, tower. And I'd never been in it in the two years I was uh, a student there, but I had to drop off my thesis there. And I got lost, and as I was dropping off my thesis, um, I took, like, a left, and I noticed that there was, like, this wooden door that was marked um, Plant Resources Center, and I just was like, okay, I'm really curious about what's behind this door. And uh, I went in, and I talked to um, the curator there, uh, Dr. George Yakasevich. I hope I'm saying his name right, Um, and I was like, uh, so this is basically a library for plants. Mm. And I asked him if it was possible um, for just someone from the public to come and look at specimens. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I don't see why not. <laughs> he didn't know what he was getting into because he couldn't get rid of me for like four years. <laughs> so, yeah, to answer, sorry, to answer your question, I turned in my manuscript and the advice that I got from uh, Noelle Colcott, who was my second reader, was I asked her what I should do next. And I was hoping she would say, like, that manuscript that I turned in to just send it out to publishers. And she was like, just write more poems. And so right away I was like, okay, I'm going to write more poems. And then they're going to be completely different from mm. from what I turned in as my thesis. Wow. Because I don't think every MFA, Absolutely. you know, thing that you create in a program just has to be a book. And I really f- started to feel that once I saw something that inspired me. Mm-hmm. And then I knew that I was going to stay in Austin and write about plants. That's awesome. So very different work than what you were working on in your MFA program. Yeah, yeah, pretty different. That's cool. 
Okay, so um, what poem in the collection, if you mind telling me, was the first one that was like, aha, I know what's gonna, I know what's working now? Um, yeah. Mm, that's a really good question. Uh, probably the first poem in the book, um, because I um, ended up um, just going outside and taking a break, and that poem came to me like, like just out of the sky, and I just was like, okay. Mm. It felt like I wrote like well over three hundred poems for this book because I read a lot, and a lot of it is not good. And part of it is just trying to figure out, like, what are those moments where the poem feels, like, connected to something outside of myself and within myself? And so the first poem was, like, um, really special to me um, because it was like I was seeing something different. Yeah. I, like... I like what you said about you know a poem is doing something when it is beyond you, but yet it's still tethered to you. Um, and actually, that's what I loved reading through Bright Specimen was that sometimes when I read poems which are heavily inspired by the natural world, sometimes I, I wonder what in particular is at stake sometimes in the poem mm -hmm. and I felt like oh your poems are there there's a lot at stake here they felt charged and personal and um in a way that I felt like I wanted to keep going but also there was something a little bit dangerous about these poems <laughs> um and that was compelling to me oh thank you <laughs> yeah, so can you talk to me a little bit about how the titles work in the poem? So, like, how did you, what is the relationship between the specimens and sort of the work that comes out of um, your meditations on them? Well, George was just so sweet and accommodating, and I'd come in every week, and I was like, you know what, I want to look at pansies. And he'd bring out, like, a bunch of folders, and I would just go through these basically broadside sheets of paper and move them, I have to be really careful. Like these are fragile, really delicate objects. Mm -hmm. And um, I would just write down like what uh, sp species the planet was and where it came from and then just go from there. So the titles are just, um, well, they're, I love it because it's Latinate language, mm -hmm. and it's, you know, um, they're tethered to something, um, you know, that I'm not familiar with, Yeah, and it's a world that I'm not familiar with, you know, I didn't, I didn't take, like, many science classes growing up, I think I only <laughs> took one, to tell you the truth, and um, I wish I would have taken more, so I had no, I was really out of my element. Um, but I felt like when you spend enough time with something, it really does start to radiate a certain presence, and that's, um, yeah, that's yeah. what I was trying to get at. <laughs> well, your poems, I mean, 
some people have very, you know, meditative process of, you know, looking and, um, yeah, well, I'm a meditation. I love, you know, I love that word. I've been trying to teach myself to meditate, but I'm like a stress case. I, you know, like I have a very hard time concentrating. And so looking at these plants um, allowed me to meditate um, in a different way. Like it was that, that to me was my meditation. And, um, and it was also about um, being in a space that felt safe to me. Okay. I mean, I was working. Actually, this is this is not completely true because the tower has some some history that you know is really associated with a lot of violence. So, um, but that particular space, working at the desk that I worked at and knowing that there were botanists working around me uh, really seriously at their work, <laughs> like quiet library time, mm-hmm. um, helped me to get in that space. So it was very much the environment. Okay, yeah. And it didn't occur to me at first why I sought out that environment, but later on I understood why. I think um, that building, uh, you know, like... It was one of the sites of the first mass shootings in the U.S. So I worked near the stairwell where George Whitman had climbed and and then uh, taken the lives of of quite a few people. And so it was a space of trauma and also a space of healing. Mm. So, yeah. That resonates. Now that Bright Specimen is done, and we're going to all buy it and read it, and it's going to be sold at our bookshop, and it's going to be wonderful, and maybe you'll come back for an event, hopefully. Um, now that that is sort of finished, um, what are you working on here in Corsicana? Oh, thank you for asking, because the reason I'm here uh, I um, is, again, uh, UT... Um, uh, the Plant Resources Center. It all goes back to <laughs> to my dear friend Dr. George, who I've been pestering for four years. He he showed me uh, these boxes of lantern slides and that were hidden away in the basement. And the moment like I held them up to the light, I was like, "Oh man, I know I'm gonna want to write about these." And I'm like, "I can't tell him." <laughs> But I want to write about these because I've just spent so much time, like, asking him, you know, to basically search the archives for all these species of plants. Um, so, yeah, these are lantern slides are, like, the precursor to 35-millimeter film. And the ones I'm looking at relate to national parks. I'm, that was, like, my thing. I wanted to look at the ones that related to national parks and... Um, I also worked on those at the herbarium. I would mount them on a light box, mm-hmm. take a photo of them, and write a poem um, about that particular landscape. And I was trying to figure out a way to keep myself out of these poems. So the whole idea of landscapes without us is to imagine a world where, you know, there are no humans. And... Um, I'm trying to describe this space like 
in an omniscient way mm. that maybe like if I were trying to describe to a space alien what the Grand Canyon looks like, how would I go about doing that? And so that's what I was interested in. But when I got here, um, after like a, over a year of COVID, I was like, oh, working with landscapes now without any people in them is sad for me. Mm. I miss people. I miss my family. I miss like... I miss the ocean, I miss the Northwest, and I started writing more about interior landscapes, um, landscapes that are also part of me. So that's the work that I produced here. Um, Yeah, that's exciting. I mean, one of the things that um, I saw in Bright Specimen and now I've seen in the first couple poems um, that have already been published from your new collection, the one that you're working on now, is a very... Um, there, there's a construction to your poems in terms of the way that they are laid out on the page. And in um, Bright Specimen, they sort of have like sort of the form of a stem or a kind of more organic, floral kind of um, arrangement. And then... Um, the first couple poems from Landscape Without Us, they have a kind of more block-like structure as as if they are being like written within the space of the lantern slide. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious about your relationship uh, between text and image and how text can become an image, but also the reverse, how these images um, of these materials or these landscapes are also informing the kind of um, lyric that you're creating. Oh, that's a great, yeah, that's a great observation. I'm glad you picked up on that, because they are, they're supposed to be the exact dimension of the slides. Um, uh, And I, like, you know, just drew an outline around the slides, and was like, I want the poems to fit in here. Mm -hmm. And um, my issue with, like, working with anything visual is how can poetry, um, like, how can it even hold up to something that is a beautiful image? I'm always going to fail. I'm always going to fail like to describe through language because what an image can do or what a plant can do is something just so remarkable that it is just awesomely difficult <laughs> to try. And that's what I was really trying to teach myself was like, I'm a poet. I need to learn how to describe things. I need to learn how to describe the world. And that is the hardest thing to do. Mm. And I think that the closest I get to it is trying to find my own sense of music and my own, like, um, my own lyric. Uh, it's kind of, like, hidden, like, really super deep in my ear. that Because I don't really read a lot of the poems out loud. I just create them to comfort myself yeah yeah moving from these turning and kind of vertical poems in bright specimen to the more um horizontal poems in landscapes without us like did that shift um how you were writing the poems or how you were hearing the poems in your head 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the shape of the plants uh, really like when I wrote those poems that the, and in that shape and bright specimen, those that is like exactly how I wrote the poem on the page. Mm-hmm. My handwriting is super slanty. And I was not, I was just looking to go super fast, like not censor myself, not second guess myself, just like power through. And I didn't edit them and I didn't want to edit them. I wanted to write hundreds of them until I like tapped into mm. to something. Uh, the new work is harder because it's more prosaic and um, it, it's just the level of difficulty um, trying to add punctuation and trying to like figure out what I'm gonna do and if the line breaks mean anything and oh because the the line breaks in in bright specimen are are working man they are doing they're doing a lot they're they're doing a lot of lift um, I'm always interested like I think like when I first read Jory Graham's first book. Um, of hybrids of plants and of ghosts. I remember how each line was in a beautiful singular thought and how they were then composed together. And when I saw, when I was reading through Bright Specimen, there were so many points where I was like, God, that break is just, <laughs> oh, sorry, I'm fangirling. But, um, Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, because I think some of them are just terrible. <laughs> and I kept them in for a reason, because I was really starting to rebel against everything that I had been trying to teach my students. I was like, don't write shape poems. Like, don't, don't like, really be careful of your line breaks and uh, what else? Edit your work. And then I did nothing of the sort for my mm. first book. I was just like, no. And it works, if it, it works, it works. <laughs> Corsicana Artist and Writer Residency is a community-funded nonprofit organization supporting the production of art and literature in historic sites in Corsicana, Texas. Find out who's currently in the studio on our website, CorsicanaResidency.org. Right now, we're in conversation with poet and April resident, Julie Poole. You mentioned that the poems that you're working on now are more um, prosaic. And I ha- we had a conversation earlier and you were saying that you didn't, you weren't always interested in poetry and that you came to sort of poetry. So can you talk to me, and that you're also, you're not just a poet, but you're also like a freelance writer. Mm-hmm. So can you talk to me about um, your relationship to both prose and poetry? Um, what you're looking for your poetry to do versus what you're looking for your prose to do. Oh. Um, so I started writing poetry after I had my first manic episode, and I couldn't, um, I was just released from the hospital, and I couldn't think, I couldn't write, I couldn't like form a sentence. And so I started po- writing poetry at that time because it was really the only thing that was available to me. And I really needed it, like I needed to write words. And then it's only been this year that I started to write prose again. Mm. And prose is like, 
It's difficult. It's um, poetry is where I turn to for comfort and solace and where I feel like I'm not going to judge myself there and I'm not going to allow myself to be judged. Mm. And for prose, it's like, you know, very vulnerable work. It's like, it's my thought. It's my rhetoric. It's like that is open for criticism and yeah. <laughs> like it's open for people to disagree with me and um so yeah I think that I really wouldn't be able to write nonfiction or do any of the freelance work that I do if I didn't have poetry to turn to has that grounding meditative space where I just allow myself um the freedom to do anything so yeah amazing that was that that moved me mm-hmm. yeah especially in a world where poetry often gets sort of a the short end of the stick or kind of like a slight um because it's not necessarily making an argument in the same way that prose is um you know like if there is this fault it maybe the dichotomy is a false one but i think about um poetry as the kind of the most embodied language can be yeah and you're learning on a different level too if you encounter a poem that you don't understand there's still some level deep like somewhere in our brains and in our bodies where we do understand the poem we do understand the rhythm we do understand the language if it moves us Mm -hmm. and I think that that is that is like the beauty of it is that it's a different form of knowledge it's a different way of arriving at knowledge it's a different way of learning Yes, girl, Ashe. Yes, that's it, that's it. Um, Okay, so you have, um, you said that you worked at a bookstore and that it's one of your favorite bookstores. Talk to me about this magical place. Oh my gosh, thank you for mentioning it. So I worked at Malvern Books. Malvern Books is in Austin, Texas, and uh, they focus on independent presses only um, from small, uh, yeah, small independent presses. Um, there is um, a ton of poetry there. Yes. And it's poetry, um, poetry and translation, fiction, fiction and translation, and then a small nonfiction section. But um, I was exposed to books there that I wasn't exposed to anywhere else, especially my MFA program. And I like I consider it the, my second MFA because I was reading work in translation and work by poets I would have never encountered before. Mm. And contemporary poets, poets who are <laughs> who I can reach out to, and people you know who I can admire and. Um, yeah, small presses are doing uh, some incredible things, and um, people really like like 
I and it's such a gift to be able to you know talk to people about poems in a bookstore like when someone comes in they're they're really afraid of poetry they they don't know what to read and the first thing they mention is Billy Collins okay well Billy Collins he's on a major press so we don't have Billy Collins so then I can like be like well what are you interested in like well maybe you'd be interested in Ross Gay or maybe yeah. you would be interested in um this other you know new poet um you know who is you know just the world just opens up yeah and you can start making someone's view of poetry being hard or being difficult or um being like schoolwork yeah 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 like there's something that you have to figure out and if you're not figuring it out then you're wrong exactly and so I loved my job as a bookseller because I thought of it as a way to help readers like I had been helped just by reading widely yeah. and all the time um, uh, and really like looking at work in translation, especially like work from other countries and being like, oh my gosh, mm. poetry is in the world. And, and thriving. <laughs> and thriving. Yeah, that's really dope. So what is your advice to us as we open a bookstore and as you are, have been and are a bookseller, like uh-huh. what is your advice to us about our bookstore? Oh my gosh. Well, my biggest advice is uh, to allow the people that work there to know the collection really well. And that means like allowing them to sometimes read you know, mm-hmm. on the <laughs> on the job, on the job, yeah. which is what I did. If it was slow, I would read. I would read a few poems here, a few poems there, and because if you have knowledgeable booksellers, if your booksellers know the catalog, they know the store inside and out. They're going to be able to make these love, um, these matchmaking. Um, mm-hmm. uh, relationships between book and reader that are just going to be so much fun because people will come back and they will say you recommended this book to me and I loved it thank you so much and they will they will say thank you it's an incredible feeling so yeah I think it's a really like booksellers aren't just people that like ring something up at the register yeah they are people that will connect you to something that'll blow your mind yeah so yeah I'm excited for you guys that's so great that's that's advice that I wouldn't have necessarily ever thought of but it's so true absolutely absolutely well you're like yeah I want to know the collection but it's like yeah because you're there to I mean it's also like um it's a it's a moment of exposure but it's also a moment of like um gentle teaching you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Where you're allowing somebody to discover something and come to their own conclusions about it, but you are opening the door for that to happen and you're making that possible. Yeah. You have been walking a lot in Corsicana. Mm-hmm. And I'm also a walker because I don't drive. Um, so I see you from time to time with your yellow Paris Review hat walking around Corsicana. What, what role does walking play in your life? Um, what interesting things have you discovered walking around Corsicana 
Yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, I also don't drive. Um, it's, I think it's a part of the process of writing. Even if you're not writing, you're moving a poem through your body. You're moving a sentence through your body. You're like, you're, I feel like writers are always writing. Um, even if you're not just at your desk, you know, you're always writing. And so for me, physical movement is, is how I get to that place where I can sit still and write. Because to tell you the truth, I don't like working at a desk. Mm -hmm. I don't like being at a desk, sitting on a chair, like, uh, I, you know, yeah, I'd rather write in like a huge big comfy chair or something Mm -hmm. like that Mm -hmm. so um yeah and I noticed things you know like I think that like I got stuck like looking at a bird the other day and then this couple was like hey you're in the driveway and I was at a bank and I was just like looking at this bird trying to figure out what this bird is and they were like you know gently honking and I was like I gotta figure out this bird <laughs> so uh it wasn't a cedar wax wing and I was like that bird and I could see I, I they were laughing and then, and then I realized like I was just standing in the driveway at the bank like looking at this bird and they were trying to get out the whole time um but uh, we need moments like that. We need to have those moments. Oh my gosh, you're a birder too. <laughs> no, I'm not a birder, but I, I, being in Corsicana, one of the things that arrests me literally every yeah. day is the clarity and the volume and like the profusion of bird calls yes. that are just constant here yeah which is something that I've never experienced anywhere else that I've ever lived like maybe at like dawn or something but like all day Uh every day bird calls to the point where like my mom when I'm on the phone with her and I'm walking or I'm outside she'll be like what is that and I'm like (laughs) oh it's the birds and she was like what's wrong with them and I was like I think they're happy I think they're happy birds um but yeah, like I stumbled upon this dead painted bunting. Wow. And I was like, first of all, painted buntings are extremely rare. And second of all, how often do you just see like a dead, beautiful yes. bird on the side of the street? And I just thought, like, speaking of like the poems that are constantly percolating, I was like, this is gonna find it's home in some poem in some point in my life I don't know where but like I'll never forget that yeah yeah I have lots of yeah pictures like that I have a small owl that I found deceased buddy a little barn owl uh cedar waxwing um yeah it's yeah birds (laughs) you know they're they're connected to the sky. They're connected to everything, you know? It, they're the coolest. And they have multiple songs. Mm. You know, you think that they have one song, but no. They're like DJs. They have, like, <laughs> like I got this song for this event and this song for this event. And they're incredible. And once you get to know those songs, like, the, the Audubon website is incredible because they have different, like, 
for every bird you look up, they have at least five songs that you can listen wow. to and the trills and like different things you can get to, to understand like what certain things mean. Okay, so Landscapes Without Us is next. Mm-hmm. And what else is on your horizon? What are the other kind of writing projects that you are really interested in tackling? Oh, I'm working on a memoir right now. It's called Are We Dead? <laughs> And it's about my experience with bipolar one disorder and being involuntarily hospitalized. And uh, it it just covers about roughly four weeks and the sort of narrative that comes out of that experience. I thought that I had landed in, in limbo. And so, um, and then I met other people like that. I met a person who believed he was Satan and then I met another person who believed she was the Virgin Mary and so I started to construct this narrative of you know where do I fit in this story it's pretty wild um, but it's the imagination is powerful and even though I wasn't connected to reality I was still um shaping a story to make sense of what was happening to me in my life. And I think that it's remarkable that that all of us do that. We have to somehow explain the world we're in, um, even if it doesn't make any sense at the time. Thanks so much to Julie for sitting down with us today. You can find more of her work on juliepooljp.com. You can also purchase her book, Bright Specimen, at deepvellum.com and at our new bookshop in Corsicana, set to open May 29th. Stay tuned for next month's podcast episode as we talk with past residents and local Corsicana fixtures. In the meantime, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter featuring updates, meditations, and marginalia from residency life in Corsicana. Find out more on our website, CorsicanaResidency.org.